ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. All around the world, Boy Scouts make the pledge to be prepared. It's been the Scouts' motto since 1907. Brendan Watson is one Scout who has had cause to really lean into this pledge in some unexpected ways. From exploding champagne bottles in Moldova to surviving an attempted coup in Moscow to driving across the Gobi Desert with a bus full of puppets. Brendan has seen a lot with the Scouts. And that training, along with his friendship with other Scouts, has also supported him when it seemed like his life was suddenly about to change in the most drastic of ways. Next month, Brendan will be sworn in as Chief Commissioner of Scouts Australia. Hi, Brendan. Hi, Sarah. How are you? Very well. Congratulations on this new appointment. How did you first become involved with Scouts? I uh, I was looking for something to do as a young person. I think I was about 10 years old. I'd Tried little athletics, but I waddled like a duck when I ran, so that wasn't for me. Uh, and then that was what my father told me. Uh, and, and I remember saying, well, I'd like to try scouts. We, we went along to the local scout group and uh, there was a waiting list, sadly. And so we tried another group and uh, the, the leader said, look, you can, you can get him in, but you'd have to become a leader mm. or, or go on the committee. And Dad said, oh, my wife will do that. So uh, Mum and I were signed up. <laughs> unbeknownst to mum, uh, and uh, she served many, many years on the Heathmont Scout Group Committee, and I, I started uh, what has been a, a marvellous experience for me and has really formed me as a, as a young person. Tell me about your first camp with Scouts, because I think that's what stands out in a lot of kids' memories who've been a part of Scouts. What do you remember about yours? Well, we uh, we were woken up in the middle of the night. It was a, a wonderful camp. I look, I love camping. Uh, I love getting out in the Australian outdoors. But I do remember that first camp. Woken up in the middle of the night by a wombat who had decided to come into our tent and was sleeping between us all. Uh, in the tent, and, and between in you. the tent. Yes, yes. What's it like uh, to sleep next to a wombat? Uh, they've got lots of fleas, uh, <laughs> so very, very solid creatures, very big, and and uh, we didn't realise it had wandered in during the night. So woke up, and there was uh, mayhem in the morning. Let's say. <laughs> so it was it was love at first wombat for you. Camping felt a good fit for you as a kid. Pretty much, pretty much, yes, that's right. And so then, how did you progress up the ranks during your your years as a teenager? Uh, look, I, I went on to uh, uh, become a adventurer and then a rover. So there are the sections in scouting. Uh, adventurers is up to the age of 18 and uh, rovers is up to the age of 26. And uh, when I turned 18, I also decided I was going to volunteer. I'd had uh, a number of wonderful adults who had volunteered so that I could benefit from scouting. And I thought I, I'd like to do the same. And I uh, signed up to be a, a leader in the scout section. And to this day, I still am. Really, is about trying to pay back things that um, I've received from scouting the benefits. But uh, I, I think every young person needs something in their life. And if everyone volunteered and we put uh, our efforts into our communities, I think we'd have much better communities to live in. When you were a young leader with the Scouts, Brendan, what led you to get involved with a group of kids from the Ukraine? Uh, early 1990s it would have been, so we became involved um, just after 
um, the Chernobyl reactor had uh, blown up and there was a, a lot of young people at that stage that uh, were orphaned or were living in uh, a zone where radiation could impact their, their health. Scouts Australia, uh, under the, the guise of uh, International Commissioner Richard Simpson at the time, chose to uh, work with UNICEF and uh, the United Nations to, to bring a group of children to Australia to help their immune systems um, build up and to give them a, a really positive experience. So my local scout group was one of many uh, across Victoria and the country that uh, sponsored and, and, and hosted uh, a group of young people from the Ukraine. Uh, there was obviously a language barrier, but Young people don't worry about that. That was broken down. They were they were twinned with a, an Australian host who was a, a local scout, and we ran a full program, which was a, a really rewarding experience for for all of us involved. They went to the zoo, Hillsville Sanctuary. We went camping for a week at uh, our, our state campsite in Victoria, Gilwell Park, and uh, just really they were kids. They had the chance to be kids, canoeing, abseiling, rock climbing. Uh, they they did art and craft activities, got to hold a... Uh, we had the snake man come out, so they, they could hold a snake and meet, meet some Australian pythons and also some other Australian animals, including a baby wombat. So there's another wombat <laughs> coming into it. Sitting around a campfire, I think, is probably one of the loveliest experiences of camping. What is it about about that that can be so special, just having the chance to sit together around a fire? I'll never forget that a, a young Indigenous scout uh, described it to me as nature's TV. <laughs> really beautiful, and it is. It, uh, you can sit around without devices and you talk. Conversations happen. Um, it's, it's where connections and friendships are built. It is just a lovely, free thing to do when we're camping. Not long after this, Brendan, you had the opportunity to travel behind the Iron Curtain. What what were you invited to? Well, I, I was in my first year of uni and uh, I have to say I wasn't doing too well. <laughs> my first six months, I pretty much failed everything. Why is that, uh, do you think? I, I wasn't ready to go to uni. I I'd had a bit of growing up to do, I think. And uh, my, my parents realised that. I was a young 18-year-old, um, but I... Uh, I was given this opportunity because of uh, our hosting of uh, the the Ukrainian young people. There was a UNESCO Youth Peace Conference being held in one of the the southern provinces of the USSR, uh, held in the southern state of Moldova. And I went to my family and said, I've been given this opportunity through Scouts to, to a sponsored place behind the Iron Curtain, USSR. What do you think? What did they say? <laughs> well, we had a, we had a few family conversations about that, but they said yes. And um, had they had much experience travelling in other parts of the world? My father had um, uh, been a peacekeeper with the United Nations uh, as a, as a Victorian police officer, and so he was in Cyprus uh, in in the seventies, and so he was very encouraging, and and so was my mum. They, they, they funded the, the, the rest of the, the part of the trip that needed funding and off I went with two other Australians and went off on this great adventure, my first time overseas, and it was to Soviet communist Russia. <laughs> what was your first arrival like? Where did you land? In Moscow and uh, it was eye-opening. Uh, I think we were met with uh, serious machine guns and I thought, I'm, I'm not in Melbourne anymore. Uh, it was quite an eye-opener. We went and saw 
Lynn's Mausoleum, we saw Red Square, St Basil's Cathedral. The sights were quite you know, phenomenal. And, and we travelled by train uh, after that down to the Ukraine where we, we, we visited the orphanages that um, these young people were in and that was heartbreaking. Were um, there any of the same kids that you'd met yeah, who'd come yeah. to Australia and what were their circumstances like back home? Oh, they were pretty bad. The, the, the orphanages in those days... They weren't good, and 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 we cried. Um, we spent time with them. We bought them gifts. Uh, but what we wanted from that project was to to hopefully give them some hope. And to this day, um, we're still in contact with a number of those those who were young people who are now adults. And uh, Fedor Kornienko would be would be one. And uh, what a what a wonderful young man he turned out to be with a, a group of. Other young people and uh, all have families now and have have, uh, really moved on to to better things, Um, most of them outside of the Ukraine at the moment. For you, Brendan, in Moscow, you know, you see all those sort of big impressive sites of of communism, but what about the kind of window into what life was like, everyday life for Russians at that time? What were the lines like when you were there? There were lines. Uh, you were told a shop would be opening and so you would line up at that store not knowing what um, delivery they would have from the government. So it could be uh, a men's size 32 blue underwear or something that they'd had and, and you would buy whatever they had so that you could trade and barter it. Um, and, and that's what we found ourselves doing. That was life in, in the USSR at that time. And it was hard. Uh, the people were living a hard life, but they were still beautiful people. And, and the hospitality we received was wonderful. How were you to travel from Moscow to Moldova? So the person that was organising uh, our conference uh, met us in Moscow. He was um, uh, from Moldova. Uh, he uh, went off and bought a bus. He had a bag of money. He bought a bus? Uh, US dollars. He went and bought a bus, came back <laughs> not, and not then he said... Not a bus ticket, but an actual <laughs> no. bus. A bus for us because uh, we were picking up um, Germans and, and other people that were coming in. And, and he said, now, can anyone drive the bus? Uh, none of us could. So he went and bought a bus driver. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was, that's how it works. You couldn't get anything have, on the black market. He had a big bag of money, I guess. He did, that I, he was carrying around. I mean, I know there are those traditions of the young pioneers and sort of youth groups in, in the USSR. Are there scouts? Were there scouts at that time as well? No, they uh, they weren't allowed at that time. Um, since uh, the, the fall of communism, certainly there have been scouts and uh, they're, they're part of our, our region of the Asia-Pacific, looks after that, that part of the world, and uh, it has been a, a growing part of scouting worldwide. So your, your interpreter, your guide, with his bag of money, bought a bus, then bought a bus driver and you headed off to Moldova. What did you know about this place before you arrived? Not a great deal. Um, I did. We did find out that it was the the farming area of um, uh, the USSR that uh, a lot of the crops came from there. Uh, what we did find out is that they also produced champagne, champansky, champansky, uh, champansky. Yes, which um, we could buy for one one US dollar. We could get about thirty two bottles of, of Pepsi in a crate. <laughs> Uh, and and so that was the that was sort of the benchmark of, of you know how much money did we have the uh, the crates of champagne we would buy for for you know after dinner and and or having at dinner after we'd done the work during the day and had these conversations we would have to leave outside because about half would explode 
and and you you'd go and buy a crate of champagne. You'd leave it outside. Then the next night, you could see whatever hadn't exploded. You could probably safely open. So in the night, you'd wake up to bang, 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 and and these champagne bottles would be exploding outside, sort of the the cabins we were staying in. It was quite bizarre. This is why Moldovan champagne hasn't rivaled French champagne, perhaps. This this I haven't seen floor. it on the shelf yet. No. <laughs> work were you doing when you arrived and what did Moldova look like? Quite a beautiful country. We were we were um, staying in a, a rural setting. There was uh, about 15 different nationalities there, mainly from Europe, but we had, had travelled the furthest, obviously, and uh, we were a curiosity as a result. <laughs> Uh, we, we were talking about um, young people, peace, um, our hopes and dreams for the world um, that we were, were going to inherit. And um, there was there was young people from uh, across the USSR there that um, their lives were very different to our lives. So they were very interested in um, what it was like to live in a free and democratic society. And, and, and we were also understanding what it was like for them not to and how blessed we truly are in Australia. Mm. So this was 1991 that you made this trip, Brendan. What happened in the USSR while you were there? So we were heading back uh, up, up uh, via road um, to Moscow and all these military vehicles were passing us on this particular day. It would have been about the 18th of August. And we said, is this, this normal? There's a lot of military movement. And the person that was looking after us said, oh, it's not unusual, but it's usually not this frequent. We got back into Moscow uh, uh, that, that evening and on the 19th of August, uh, a coup broke out and we were right in the middle of it. And were you um, in a hotel or a homestay we, or what? We, yeah, we were staying in the Moldovan hotel and Moldova was a breakaway state, so it wasn't necessarily um, safe to stay there anymore. We were on the other side of um, uh, the city from the Australian embassy and there was, there was no chance we could get there. Foreigners were being rounded up, the airport had been seized, we couldn't get out, communications were being shut down. Now, this is pre-mobile phone, pre-internet. Uh, our families know where we are and they're seeing this coup break out on the news and it happened to be my mum's birthday, the 19th of August. So, oh, poor um, mother. Not, uh, yes, not great. Um, we hadn't spoken for, for weeks. Um, to get a call out in those days, you used to have to book an international call and um, the, the Soviets would tell you the time. So I remember booking a call to Australia prior to Mum's birthday, hoping it would be around that, that date. Uh, it, it came about the, the 16th that I could make the call and I had to get up at 2 in the morning to go and make this call. So I'm sitting on the, the phone, the operator uh, rings the number, comes on and says, busy, hangs up. <laughs> that, That's that it. Was, that was it. That was my one chance. So I hadn't spoken to my family. It had been six weeks that we'd been there and this coup breaks out. There's tanks rolling down the street. You were on the other side of, of the city from the Australian embassy. Did you try to get there? We couldn't. We were told it wasn't safe and it wasn't. We just couldn't get across um, uh, that, that line of military and, and decided that we shouldn't. We did pay someone on the black market to get a, a, a note to the Australian embassy that said, Australian scouts gone camping, all OK. <laughs> <laughs> Was that passed back to your families in Australia? They got it. Yes, yes, they did get it. Uh, so they knew we were okay at least. So that was a, a, a relief. <laughs> Wait we, a minute, you went camping. Where, where did you go? 
Well, we, we decided it was safer in the foothills and um, we could go into town to get food and what have you, but just to try and sit it out. And what kind um, of location had you set up camping? In, in, just in the, the camping area, just in outside the, the, the city. So um, I, think, I think Baden-Powell would have been very proud of this, <laughs> Brendan. I think this deserves a, a whole new scouting badge making making this decision. We also then, through, through the person that was looking after us, uh, again, uh, organised fake IDs and um, uh, tickets to on a train to, to Budapest. Um, my my ID was had me as a I think it was a twenty two or twenty three year old Hungarian, um, and I didn't look twenty two or twenty three. This was going to be a problem. We um, we also heard that it was safe around the, um, uh, the the state parliament building where Boris Yeltsin at the time was held up, um, and and we went there, and that's um, uh, on the other side, and they started firing tanks on that building. So the the barricades around it, people being injured, people fleeing, and and we just got out of there. It, it just was horrific, um, a very scary thing for for this eighteen year old. Were you being able to listen in the radio, follow the news, I and mean, as you say, pre internet? But could you get the BBC or something like that? That's exactly what we did. We were listening to BBC Radio um, to find out what was happening until um, that was all blacked out. There was a complete communications blackout, and then it ended. It literally, we thought this was going to escalate and the next day it was over and communism had fallen. Uh, amazing time to be there and I, I still have the international papers um, that were printed from, the, from that time uh, and, and we witnessed it. So, What were the scenes on the streets like after that? People were celebrating, yeah. We were able to get to the Australian Embassy then. They uh, helped us get out and um, uh, flew us to the Netherlands where we were put up in a hotel in the red light district of all places. <laughs> so, Why was this the decision the Australian embassy? I don't talked? know. It's just it's just where the embassy they were using was. I think it was cheap. Gosh, from yes. from one extreme to the other. <laughs> it was. It really was. And we all rang our parents then, and uh, pretty easily, we we came back together. And um, the other two said, "Oh, well, we're going home." One said, "Today, you know, tonight I'm flying out." The the other said, "Tomorrow," because all our, our families said the same thing. When are you coming mm. home? And my response to my parents was, why? It's over now. Uh, and so I kept travelling. I backpacked through Europe and um, spent the rest of the, the, the year, really, um, going and, and meeting scouts that I knew or people that I'd met on this, this um, youth conference and, and staying with them and, and doing homestay. And it was a wonderful experience and a, a time to grow up so that when I came back and went back to university, I, I thrived. I, I did really well, which was a good thing. What were you studying at university, Brendan? Uh, education, visual arts. So uh, I, I first graduated as an art teacher. And tell me what happened in your final year at university. Yeah, so uh, in my final year of, of becoming an art teacher, I uh, I contracted, a, oh, I had uh, acute multifocal placoid pigment epitheliopathy, which meant I went blind. I lost my eyesight for uh, about nine weeks and couldn't see anything. How were you first aware that something was not right with your eyes? What were the, what were the earliest symptoms? I, I worked in a supermarket um, on weekends and, and after hours to get money to be at uni and um, I was having trouble actually seeing the change. And so I went to an optometrist on the Friday thinking, oh, there's something wrong, and I was told it was a floater in my eyes, but it started getting worse and worse and... Uh, on the Monday, I, I went to my own doctor and uh, he, he said, oh, we've got to get you to hospital. He thought it was a, a, a brain tumour or something. So your and sight was just closing in, was it? Yeah, yeah I was very, 
yeah, very, very little sight by this stage. In fact, to the point where I couldn't drive a car, um, my father had to drive me and they put me straight into hospital, um, did scans of my brain and all sorts of things. And it wasn't very well known what this thing was at, at, at this time, uh, but we found a specialist who, who knew what it was. It wasn't a brain tumour, but what was causing no, the, this? The, the epithelium of the, uh, is the, the first layer of cells. So basically there was a, a, a closing over of those first layer of cells at the back of my eye and it was like a plaque that had, had developed from having tonsillitis, in fact. Uh, that I had previous to that, and we had to wait, just had to wait it out to see how much damage there was going to be to my eyes and how much sight I might get back. But that took a while to get to that diagnosis. It was a couple of weeks of, of not knowing, uh, and, and I didn't think being a, a blind art teacher was going to be that easy, actually. So had you lost all of your sight? All of it. I couldn't see a thing. I, I, I'd sit in my room and, and have the television on and I remember my dad walking past at one stage and uh, he said, what, why are you sitting in the dark watching television? I said, well, number one, I can't see it. I didn't realise the lights were off. Um, it was it was an experience. My sense of smell, taste, um, hearing really improved over that, that period of time, um, remarkably so, and I wasn't relying on my sight. That's why, but... What was your emotional state like at that time? That's a huge thing to suddenly being be thrown into. How were you thinking about your future and, and your life in that, those weeks of darkness when you wouldn't know if it would end or when it would end? I don't think I panicked. It was, it was just something that was happening to me and so I just had to go with it at the time. There was nothing I could do. I had no control over this. So I, I remember hearing you know, mum and dad whispering up the front of the house and I could hear what they were saying. Um, I could hear mum crying. Uh, but for me it was, well, I've just got to get through this. Whatever whatever this is, you've got to make the most of it. My friends helped me do that. Well, they took me camping and, and, and really rallied around me and looked after me. Um, the, the, the friends I made in scouting right through my life um, I still have today and... Um, uh, you know, one of my best mates, Andrew, um, who we went through scouts and, and ventures and rovers together, yeah, he used to pick me up and, and take me out in my car and, and we go and do things, um, you know, even, if even if it was to go to the movies or something. So you had to keep living your life as normal and and I did. And I look, I, I look back now and uh, I, I regained my sight, but uh, it, was a, it was an experience that I'll never forget and... Um, I have the utmost admiration for people who live without sight because it is. I experienced it for a short time in my life and it was very challenging, but um, look, they are amazing people. Tell me about the, the process of getting your sight back. What treatment did you receive or, or how did that happen? There was not much they could do. We had to just wait it out and monitor it um, and it just started to, to come back but bit by bit. I could start to see light and shadows and then eventually colour. Uh, and, and yes, as, as the, the specialist doctor that I was seeing said, we just have to wait and see um, how much will come back. So my left eye, I have about 50% vision, and my right eye, I have full vision. And it was caused from plaque following tonsillitis? Yeah, yeah, a plaque or a build-up of, uh, on the back of the eye, on the, um, the, the, the layer of cells there, mm. yeah. Has it left you with a, a ongoing appreciation for the use of your sight, do you think? 
Oh, absolutely. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, but never take anything for granted. Um, we, we, I'm, I'm very lucky that um, I, my sight came back. The, it was narrowed down to one of two things, and um, the second one was I wouldn't get my sight back at all. But um, I, I did. I was fortunate. Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. How did your first day in the classroom go? I, uh, I was uh, appointed at St Peter's College in Cranbourne in the uh, outer suburbs of Melbourne and at that stage um, the school was well, still surrounded by paddocks, now it's surrounded by housing and I was up the back uh, in a portable, I had Year 7 students and uh, I was a Year 7 homeroom teacher and that first day of, of being in class was wonderful. I'd already been a scout leader for four years and, and scouting had really taught me how to work with young people. So this was a bit of an extension. And the, the principal came up to me on the, the first day and said, uh, Terry Feely was his name, he was a, a Scotsman, and I thought, oh, what have I done wrong? The principal's going to my classroom. Uh, what have I done wrong? So I had the students stand and say good morning to the, the principal. And uh, he, he said, Mr Watson, could I see you outside the room? There's, there's some cows on the oval. Would you go and shoo them off? You're on yard duty at recess. I'll look after your class. So down I went. And I, I'm a suburban kid. You know, I, I wasn't <laughs> But you're a on scout, a farm. Brendan. You're meant to be yes. able to, you know, step into situations with wildlife or livestock yep. and do something. There's, there's, there's no cow herding badge. <laughs> uh, and I, <laughs> I, I'm or if pretty there was, bad. you wouldn't get it. <laughs> I would not get it, no. Uh, I could not shoo those cows. They just looked at me. They they didn't want a bar of me. So I had to go and get the, the another graduate teacher who was the agriculture, horticulture teacher and, and ask him, would he help me? And he just whistled and yelled at them and off they went. <laughs> they wouldn't listen to me. Thank goodness the students did, but the cows wouldn't. What other experience did you have with that ag teacher and his approach to <laughs> teaching kids? We won't name names, but I, I remember the, uh, him coming into our office one day quite despondent. And I said, oh, what's wrong? He said, uh, oh, I just got told off by the boss. I said, well, what did you do? He was all upset that I brought a gun to school. I said, "You, you what?" And so they'd raised this, this, these animals. And part at the end of the year was to put the animal down. It went off to the butcher, and he did that as a demonstration in front of the class. And apparently, these students were running up the driveway screaming um, away from from what they'd seen. Uh, so it was normal in the bush, but it wasn't normal in uh, sort of on the edge of the city at that stage in Cranbourne. <laughs> So you were still maintaining your involvement with the Scouts as you were, you know, developing your, your teaching career. What took yes. you to Mongolia? Look, I had the opportunity to um, uh, be appointed as International Commissioner of Australia um, while I was still teaching in Cranbourne. So I was, I was only uh, 24 at the time, so I was fairly young to be taking up a, a National Commissioner role. In fact, I was one of the younger ones in the world. And 
we we ran projects overseas with with new um, scout organisations, and Mongolia had just been admitted to um, uh, World Organisation of the Scouting Movement, and I'd I'd met their chief commissioner and their international commissioner at a world conference. And we, we got to talking and uh, they said, we'd love for Australia to partner with us. We've, we've got some real challenges and scouting is wanting to make a, a better world, create a better world. And, and certainly in Mongolia uh, at the time, one, it had one of the highest uh, youth mortality rates um, for children. And so we worked together to devise a, a program where um, UNICEF again and the uh, World Health Organisation uh, part funded this as well as Scouts Australia and uh, DFAT also uh, helped through the uh, embassy in China who was looking after uh, Mongolia at the time. We um, bought a, a bus and had the side cut out and, and, and uh, refurbished it so it could be a stage, it would open up like a stage and we got a group of young people that we twinned with um, Mongolian young people and because of the language barrier, uh, what we did is we said the, the Australian scouts would um, have puppets and be the puppeteers and the Mongolian scouts would narrate the stories. <laughs> it was to really try and help uh, people understand health implications of, of what was happening there. So uh, iodine deficiency disorder, um, rehydration, um, there was the Black Plague still the in uh, Mongolia. Plague. The marmots would carry still the plague and so if you could... Uh, Chase a marmot, that was fine. But if you could catch a marmot, just leave it alone because it was obviously sick and that would be transmitted to people. And kids would obviously chase these marmots and, and that's fun, but catching them meant mm. that they, it was pretty much a death sentence for them. Uh, so there was, a, it was also um, HIV, AIDS, um, uh, um, education. So this stage, this mobile stage, was to travel around the six IMAGs or provinces around the Gobi Desert, and we were expecting about a 1,000 young people uh, over over the, the weeks that it travelled around. What happened was 9,000 uh, to 10,000 people turned up because the, the young people brought mum, dad, auntie, uncle, the whole villages turned up. Well, and, if there's a bunch so, full of scouts in a converted bus doing puppetry, I would turn up if I was living on yes. the Gobi Desert to see what on earth was happening. <laughs> yeah, and so it was a, it was a mobile global develop, development village caravan, we called it, but it was really an education centre hmm. and it was all about health and first aid was one of the, um, uh, the activities as well, so teaching first aid, so the puppets would teach first aid. And it went down so well that the French, the following year, the French scouts took it over and the... Youth mortality rate in Mongolia dramatically improved. Wow. And, and, and that was an amazing outcome. Absolutely. It, it achieved the results. What was that landscape like, the Gobi Desert? There's not many trees in uh, Mongolia, from from minus 40 to plus 40s. <laughs> um, so I remember going there um, to set this up and meeting with the Mongolians, and I, I was at the end of um, uh, winter, and it was still about minus 30 degrees. And we booked into the, the, the hotel, which was a very expensive hotel. It was the one hotel in Ulaanbaatar. And I was asked when I checked in, do you want hot water or heating? <laughs> what did you choose? But what would you choose? I'd choose the, the heating. Correct. Yeah. Because you, you can boil the water. <laughs> so, yes, I chose heating. Uh, that, that was a good call. I feel well I've done. got good <laughs> approval from my scouting. My, my scouting credibility is I've answered the right one. I'm very happy about that. Um, and you were there with scouts from, from other countries. What was karaoke like 
in Mongolia. <laughs> so there were, uh, at that original meeting, there were some Japanese scouts that came with us uh, and the Mongolians apparently like uh, karaoke. Now, my mother asked me not to sing. In fact, in church <laughs> I've been told by a, a, a friend of mine, turned around and said, it's best if you mime. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, so I'm not the best singer, right? I'll admit that. But uh, here I was um, in, a, in a karaoke room uh, doing uh, English karaoke with Mongolians and Japanese scouts. And I remember the, the Japanese um, commissioner got up and he sang, I say potato, you say potato, I say tomato, you say tomato. <laughs> There was no pronunciation change. The song loses no, some wasn't. of its fire no, when there's not potato, no, potato. I, <laughs> I was crying. Yeah, it was it was brilliant. The best the best performance of that I've ever witnessed. I loved it. <laughs> not much later after that, you went to East Timor. Why was that? I did. Uh, so I was international commissioner, as I said, and uh, Untayet, the United Nations Transitional Administration in East Timor, had. Uh, not long moved in to uh, look after the, the Timor-Leste uh, people and and to hand over um, to establish government there. And we know that um, Cosgrove was the, the force commander there. Uh, the deputy force commander rang the international office where we were working this evening and explained who he was and that he'd been involved in scouts and had been a, a, on a group committee for scouts and would scouts be able to send a couple of people over to support them and, and to provide a report on the development for young people, what needed to occur? And so the Chief Commissioner at the time, um, uh, Dr Bruce Munro and I found ourselves uh, flying out to East Timor and um, I remember remember t- being told um, that we might come under fire as we're landing and I'm thinking, oh, Christ, what have I got myself into here? What the was Timor like when when you got there? What what did it look like at that point after so so soon after the war? Dili was a shell. In fact, um, the buildings were concrete shells that were burnt out. Um, it it was it was a wreck. Um, it it was the aftermath of a war zone. Um, that's what it looked like, uh, and it was it was really confronting. We were assigned a Portuguese officer to uh, look after us and to be our our escort around country and and also to look after us security-wise because it still wasn't completely safe. And we got to meet a lot of people and namely scouts uh, who... Scouting had been thriving in in Timor-Leste. Really? Throughout the time of um, uh, the Indonesians being there. And, and Indonesia is one of the biggest scouting countries in the world, in fact. Uh, it's run through the school system, so every student is a scout in Indonesia. The Timor-Leste um, young people had also been scouts and wanted to remain as scouts. So we were very quickly connected with, with scouts from around the country and, and got to meet with them. And we heard their stories. Um, I remember one young boy who had lost everyone in his family except his grandmother. Um, He'd seen his mother killed. Um, He'd seen his siblings taken off. And he didn't know where any of his family were except his grandmother. They had us to dinner in this burnt-out concrete room, no roof, no windows, no door. Um, The handmade 
woven rug that we were sitting on was beautiful. Um, the textiles in, in, in Timor-Leste mm. are beautiful. And we're sitting there with this food that the whole village had contributed. And we were asked to eat first. And then at the end of that meal, they gave us the rug. Humbling. Mm, what an honour and what an insight into a people's generosity and goodness. Do you yeah, still have yeah. that rug, Brendan? I do. I do. And and if any of us think that you know we're having a bad day, gee, we, we are so lucky in this country. We really are. Did you encounter, I mean, you had been warned before you went that you might come under fire. Did you have any experiences of, of gunfire or, or danger in that way while you were in Timor? We were, we were meeting in a school this particular day and um, a, a window smashed. And I thought, that's odd. And before I knew what was happening, we'd been pushed to the floor by the um, Portuguese officer that was looking after us. And uh, Bruce was quite a bit older than me and it was with you know, some dodgy knees and, and when we were told to crawl and, and more windows were breaking, it turned out it was bullets. And then the, the officer said, put your scarves on. They're less likely to shoot you. Your scarves. scarves? Yes, yeah. Because that's how scouting was thought of there. They, um, they respected scouts. And so we put our scarves on as we crawled along the floor to the back, to the back of the, the area we were at to, to be evac'd out of there. Turns out it was kids with guns out the front just playing around. Um, to, to, to move from a, a, a time where young people were part of the uprising to then say it's all over and go back to school, there's been a lot in between those two times and, and still there's um, a lot of healing going on, I believe, in, in Timor-Leste. The people we met were just some of the most beautiful people in the world and uh, we have... have Scouts in the the school that I'm at, and and we still do visits to Timor Leste and partner with them over there, and 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 have had a, quite a number of young people go pre-COVID, and we will start that again soon post-COVID. Mm. Alongside your your scouting, you were building your teaching career, and ended up as principal of a, a Catholic college in Melbourne. Tell me how you met a young man named Syed Alkasad. So um, uh, Saad Al-Qasab and his family were uh, Syrian refugees and Saad and his, his brother had been scouts in, in Syria until it became illegal. They, they tell a story of having food packages in their scout hall and, and handing that out and the scout leader was killed for doing it. And why was um, that, do you know, Brendan? Why was it made illegal, scouting in Syria? because it wasn't controlled by the government. Um, it provided hope and it helped people, um, is what they tell me. They, they uh, came to Australia as refugees. Their whole family was lucky to escape. And uh, we came across them because they walked into a scout hall in the north of Melbourne, uh, unable to speak English but wearing their scout scarves. <laughs> and the local rover crew took them in. And I met them soon after that uh, and, and we worked on their story which they presented at our annual meeting when I was Chief Commissioner of Victoria. I, I spoke to them afterwards and said, are, are you looking for work? Do you need work? And they said, yes, we are. I said, look, we have some, some work in our grounds and maintenance team over Christmas at the school. And so they, they started the, the next day and, and worked very hard. And I got to know them both pretty well 
and their story was uh, one of, a very harrowing one. Um, Saad's older brother had been captured and tortured and shot. Um, he was lucky to, to escape with his life. And Saad had, 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 had been out of school for many years because of the conflict over there, and he said to me, I wish I could go to school, a school like this. I said, well, you can go to school. He said, no, I'm, I've been told my English isn't good enough and that I'm, I'm 18 now, so I can't. And I said, well, we'll see about that. And, and I spoke to our priest, Father, Father O'Reilly, and we agreed that this young Muslim man, we'd, we'd give him a place at Catholic Regional College, Sydenham. So we did. He came in not able to speak a lot of English. Um, over the holidays, he'd watch Parliament on, on the ABC <laughs> because he was able to learn English. kind of vocabulary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Objection, Mr Speaker. Uh, <laughs> uh, but he was able to learn a lot of English uh, before school started by watching <gasps> Parliament time. And he started and we, we did extra English classes. Teachers were very generous at the school um, and his English teacher in particular by providing extra tuition after after school. At the end of year 12, he got a 96.65 and became ducks of the school. What a wonderful story. That's extraordinary. Yes. And, what's, and what's he done since? Well, uh, he's just finished his medical degree and is now a doctor um, <laughs> through the, the University of Melbourne. And so that young man who came to us unable to speak English because we invested in him, and I think this is the same with any young person, if you invest in young people, they can, they can really flourish. And that's, that's what's happened with, with my experience in scouting. Um, adult volunteers have invested in me, and that's what I believe we, I need to do and that other adults in scouting who give of their time, we should all be doing, investing in young people and helping them flourish and, and become the best version of themselves that they can. How's the rest of his family doing? His dad works in our library <laughs> and um, his other two siblings have been through the school as well and uh, his next youngest sibling is uh, uh, doing biomedicine in South Australia and his, um, uh, his sister is also studying. So they're a wonderful family who, who are now Australian. They are Australian citizens and are... Uh, we hear a lot about refugees and, and they can be very much demonised um, sometimes in the media and, and Muslims, but this is a, a Muslim family of refugees who have come to this country wanting a better life. No one chooses to be a refugee, no one, and no one wants that for their children. And, and through kindness and friendship, they have flourished and, and they're really contributing back to our country and making it a better place. This organisation that you joined at 10 or 11 or so because you weren't very good at little athletics, Brendan, <laughs> in what ways is it a different organisation now than, than it was, you know, 40 years or so ago? Well, let's even go back further to when it started with 21 boys from different socioeconomic backgrounds uh, and it was a it was an experiment to try and bring these kids in in um, England together for a, a an experiment. It was only boys then, and and now it's a very inclusive multicultural organisation for boys and girls, and it really is quite open to um, having people belong. It's about connectedness, and it's grown and developed. Scouting has modernised over the years. Its program is is current and about adventure and about um, young people developing skills and leadership. I guess, really, scouting has evolved through the ages to provide young people with what they need. And 
if it means nowadays getting out from behind a screen, I think that's a pretty good thing. On the weekend, I was um, on a, a bike hike with my local scout group, uh, paddle boarding, bike hike, and we had a, a fantastic weekend. And there was no screens in sight. <laughs> that motto, be prepared, what does it mean to you? What's at the heart of that admonition, be prepared? Well, today we'd probably talk about resilience. It's about being resilient enough to be able to manage whatever life throws at you. And so when we talk about being prepared, I guess that's what the the modern context is, is about building resilience and capabilities in in people so that they can face into whatever life is going to throw at them in this complex world. You've had quite a few unexpected adventures with Scouts, Brendan. Do you think you've got some more ahead? I hope so, and I hope I can provide more adventures for a lot more young people in this new role I'm about to take on. Well, thank you to you. It's been great to hear some of your stories, and congratulations on the new role. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations.